You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the ABA's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. This week, we're continuing our series on generative AI, deepfakes, and national security. And my guest tonight is Klon Kitchen from the American Enterprise Institute, who recently testified before Congress with others about the national security implications of generative AI. Klon is a non-resident senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He was the national security advisor to Senator Ben Sass. And he has 15 years in the national security ecosystem where he worked on a variety of things and for a variety of programs. Klan, thank you for coming in. We really appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Let's talk a little bit about how AI can be used against the United States to undermine national security, to amplify any possible both kinetic threats and foreign malign influence campaigns. Well, yeah, there's a lot there. So artificial intelligence is best understood as an enabling technology that has many, many applications, most of them very good. I believe that artificial intelligence and particularly some of the new tools like generative artificial intelligence are actually a national security lifeline. That being said, they do carry with them national security concern and challenges. And some of those would include generally just more efficient, more capable challengers and and enemies. So One of the near-term impacts of artificial intelligence being deployed at scale is its impact on things like logistics and supply chains. Those capabilities are not going to be reserved only for the good guys, but also for the bad guys. And so that means that over the course of a relatively short amount of time, the United States is going to be facing increasingly capable and efficient and productive foreign militaries and hostile state and non-state groups who are leveraging artificial intelligence. So that's that's just a general concern. What I would say are some of the near-term concerns that occupy a lot of thinking at the National Security Council and within the U.S. intelligence community are its ability to significantly, perhaps even exponentially, grow the threat of traditional and novel cybersecurity risks. So the ability to generate new code or automate the deployment of that code is going to be something that we see more and more, which means that as the United States already has one of the largest, what we call cybersecurity threat surfaces in the world, if not the largest cybersecurity threat surface, we are quickly going to see generative AI pour gas on those fires because it's going to, again, allow hostile cyber actors to be more efficient and to automate much of their work that they currently have to do, you know, essentially by hand. So that's that's one implication. The, the other near-term challenge that a lot of national security professionals are talking about, and it's even in the news now as we approach the next presidential election cycle, and that is the ability of generative AI to grow and speed up, you know, increase the scale and the speed of misinformation and disinformation. So we have already all seen the the synthetic media that these generative AI programs can build, whether it be images or video, movies, even data. This is now here with us. Those capabilities have already been democratized, and it is inevitable that the hostile actors will use these capabilities as a means of undermining American confidence in its democratic institutions. 
those are very significant challenges that we face. And to your point about automating some of the ability to commit cyber attacks, maybe our listeners can think about things like penetration testing, which is now, you know, out of the box. You can buy it off the shelf. It's used by a lot of hackers. Imagine that on not just steroids, but steroids on steroids, where whatever program you buy can just rewrite itself until it finds a hole in anything, I guess is what you're saying, right? That is among the applications. Now, the good news is, is that these same capabilities will be used in defense, right? So we'll have these polymorphic algorithms, these algorithms that change themselves the way you were describing. We're going to have those on, on the defender side too. But on cybersecurity, as in, as in most security issues, the advantage is on or is often with the attacker and not the defender because, you know, the defender has to be right every time and the attacker only has to be right once. It is a double-edged sword. The attacker advantage is real and something that is concerning. Let's talk about one of the things that comes out repeatedly at this time of year. And by this time of year, I mean when the NDAA or the National Defense Authorization Act is being discussed. One of the things that kind of comes up repeatedly is comparative spending between nations. Can you discuss the comparative spending on AI by the United States, say, versus China, and on the sort of size and girth of the defense industrial base in each country and how they compare and might feed into these new technologies becoming weaponized in ways that are, I'm just going to quote Sam Altman here, an existential threat to humanity. Both Washington and Beijing have recognized a new reality. They are trying to account for that reality. And that reality is that the technologies that are going to shape future economies, societies, and battlefields are increasingly being developed in the private sector for commercial applications, things like artificial intelligence. The governments are having to reconcile themselves to the fact that they are now a national security stakeholder and they are no longer the national security stakeholder. And more to the point, many of these companies, particularly Western technology companies, now have a breadth of influence and of global interests and even economic power that formerly was reserved only for the state. This is a defining feature of the modern national security context, and governments are having to navigate their way in this kind of renegotiation of the public contract here. And the two models at play are, that are kind of represent both ends of the spectrum are the, the American model and the Chinese model. The American model is slow, cumbersome, but ultimately more resilient, and I'm convinced results in greater human thriving and security over the long term. And that is a model where the U.S. government seeks to voluntarily partner with industry over a shared understanding of the challenge or of the threat and in an attempt to secure shared interests. Because the truth is, is American leading technology companies could not be what they are now anywhere else in the world. They, they benefit significantly from the protections, both legal and even physical, that they enjoy in the United States. There is ample room for engagement and partnership. Now, in our system, that's messy and it's complex and it's cumbersome, but we can do it and we are doing it. And over the course of time, I do think that's more resilient. Okay. Now, the opposite side, the, the other response to this dynamic is the Chinese one, where they simply co-opt their industry. There's a doctrine. It's called civil military fusion. It's the idea that the state, the Chinese Communist Party in this case, co-ops their industry and uses them as an extension of the state. 
They are leveraged as a state capability. They have laws that are very clear, written in English. I'm, I'm confident that reader or listeners to this podcast will know this very well, that say that every bit and byte of data that is generated by, that uh, resides on, that even transits any Chinese network or the network of any subsidiary of a Chinese company must by law be made available to the Chinese Communist Party, at least upon request, if not by default. Right. And so you're referring to the Chinese cybersecurity law, as it is known, which well, um, not only the cybersecurity law, but even their espionage laws and even the one that was most recently updated a month ago. And it is unambiguous in terms. So I take your point. And we've also seen some action right now in China to basically seize part of companies. They're behemoths like Tencent, Alibaba and the like. I hear what you're saying. It's it's not an attractive place. We're a more attractive place to come, in other words, because you don't have things like a foreign minister who suddenly disappears for three weeks or a CEO who's vanished for two months. Generally here, you do pretty well and you could be assured of freedom and safety. So, yes, that does appear to be an advantage over the long haul. So just on that, just to, to kind of close the loop on the on the investment side. So one of the key distinctions or one of the important points on when you do a comparison and contrast between United States investment in some of these capabilities and Chinese investment. Number one, it's very difficult to trust the numbers that you get out of China because they're often inflated. But two, there's a massive difference. There's a massive difference between private sector investment, which the overwhelming portion of Western and particularly American investment is done in the private sector, not by government. Mm. Whereas in, in the in the Chinese economy, it's it's centrally directed for the most part. It's a little bit of apples and kumquats in terms of comparison and contrast. So it can be a helpful rhetorical bias to say, oh, the, the Chinese are outspending us on AI investment. Well, that has a limited utility. There's no doubt about it, particularly if they want to stay focused on a particular type of application. But generally speaking, our model produces much greater agility, economic agility and technological agility and overall prosperity. But that is not to say that they don't enjoy some advantages, particularly being able to keep their eye on the ball on something that's, you know, pretty profitable. Yes. And when you talk about cumbersome, you're talking about a lot of things, including, you know, all the rules that govern our defense industrial base, which are just beyond comprehension, procurement rules and the like, the contracting rules. And they don't have any of that because they can just make a decision and move forward. It also, though, doesn't consider the marketplace of ideas. Uh, oftentimes, there's not a whole lot of testing of whether something will really be beneficial or helpful over the long term, because it's sort of whatever the big guy says goes. And there's not a lot of but ifs, let's consider this. I believe you've answered this question, but the defense industrial complex is, in addition to what you're saying here, though, it's structured entirely differently. I mean, at this point, China does appear to have the world's largest military, and it has an enormous defense industrial complex that would exceed in terms of its size are what we think of as our big ones like McDonnell Douglas, you know, Lockheed Martin, all of these companies that produce Boeing, all these companies that produce like really amazing things. What does it look like on the Chinese side? If you could explain that and somehow where AI might come into that sort of structure. So the first thing to understand is that the military that the Chinese has sought to build and to wield is fundamentally different than the American military. So the American military is primarily focused about projection power of projecting power abroad, 
right? The ability to rapidly move into essentially any theater of operations and to project decisive power in short order. That type of an expeditionary networked force is fundamentally different than what the Chinese have prioritized. And instead, they have prioritized primarily a defensive military capability, particularly the defense of the homeland. And they've only in the last you know, two decades really started focusing on the development of a meaningful blue water navy, for example. It's certainly true that scale is a capability on its own. And, and in the case of, of the Chinese, that is certainly true. Just pure raw manpower numbers matters. At the same time, their ability to move that million man army is very limited and constrained. What they have prioritized in terms of capabilities, which where I think they're now approaching if they have not met kind of a near peer competitor status, is on digital capabilities, what we call area denial capabilities. So this would include obviously cyber, right? So uh, I believe it was FBI Director Christopher Wray who's publicly said multiple times that China's cyber cadre is larger than all of our other competitors combined. Certainly that translates to a type of, of capacity and, and advantage just in terms of being able to do stuff. They've got people to do things. But they've also emphasized anti-space and anti-Navy capabilities, which are directly targeted at uh, the way the United States would engage in, in a conflict in the Pacific, right? We would be highly networked. And so anti-satellite work uh, or anti-satellite capabilities would disrupt that, as well as obviously anti-ship and anti-Navy capabilities. Where AI kind of feeds into all of that, again, is it's, it's this enabling, this force multiplying capability where they have been able to make great gains on those capabilities is both through the theft of intellectual property, the theft of data, and even, unfortunately, just outbound American investment in companies who are pioneering some of these technologies. That has been a real challenge and, and, is, and is an issue that the previous administration and this administration have engaged and are thinking deeply about possible constraints on, on outbound investment in the similar fashion as to what we've seen on integrated chips or semiconductors, like the October 7th rules of last year. So sort of a reverse CFIUS process. If you want to go exactly out, right. let's conduct an, an inspection of what your motives are and what you're investing in. Doesn't sound like the worst idea. I wonder how it would play out in, in reality. But one of the things that 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 brought me to you in the first place was you sounded an optimistic note as well during your testimony. And quite frankly, we don't hear that a lot. It's a dystopic view. Somebody who knew that we were doing a series on AI sent me a clip of a, a video a clip from a movie I think was called RoboCop. Yeah, I think that's right, where they were doing a prototype that as they were demonstrating it around a, a conference table in an office building, the thing went berserk and shot everybody in the place. But you're not painting this sort of the monster, the uh, machines go wild. But my concern in listening to you is, is what takes me back to sort of military theory, which I'm sure you studied in your graduate programs. And, and that is that, you know, it's the Council of Sun Tzu that we never underestimate our enemies and that and military strategists would say the same thing. And you frequently can get yourself in serious trouble when you you do that. How do you arrive at this optimistic belief? First of all, say what it is, what your baseline belief is, what could blunt the effect of China's use of AI or generative AI, and what facts and trends have helped you arrive at this place as a guy who's been an analyst looking at this stuff, quite frankly, for years? Yeah, so Sun Tzu and his admonitions taken in whole also include the admonition of knowing yourself and knowing your enemy. 
right? And so obviously underestimating one's enemy is, 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 is catastrophic and no one ever thinks they're doing it when they do it. But I'm not an idealist. I think I've even in our discussion already articulated just some of the very real concerns associated with these technologies that I think have to be understood and engaged. And I understand most of these challenges to be problems that we manage, not problems we solve. So I don't think I suffer from any kind of idealism. That being said, I do think that artificial intelligence and, and, and particularly these generative AIs and, and everything that's going to follow could offer a national security lifeline. And, and what I mean by that is that they're going to lead to some bespoke capabilities that are real and that we are going to be able to apply in ways that provide, uh, I think, real material advantage and capability. All of the underlying computer science that is getting right, that is giving rise to these technologies is overwhelmingly headquartered and centered in the West, and particularly the United States. And in a moment, I'll talk about some of the things that I think are systemic challenges for the migration of this capability into, into China, or that will at least slow it. So one, we're going to get really capable cool things that we can do with this. But two, and this is really the source of, of my optimism, that everything I have read, even, even the most kind of somber, honest takes about this, that's not caught up in the hype cycle of all this, still says that these tools and capabilities are going to have a dramatic economic impact in the United States. Um, there's no argument about whether or not it's going to lead to significant improvements in efficiency and productivity, and that that's going to equal trillions of dollars annually in, in the global economy. The only argument really is, is like how quickly. And what everybody seems to agree on right now is quicker than we thought. And, and so I see this as an opportunity if realized deliberately, and that's a big if, but if realized deliberately, these, these emerging technologies and their follow-on capabilities could give us an opportunity to get our economic house in order and to, to build a national security enterprise that is finally resourced commensurate with its responsibilities. We've not been doing that for a long time, and we have known that. And it has been laid bare as a matter of truth, simply by the difficulty of our defense industrial base's struggle to keep up with the conflict in Ukraine. And so my hope is, is that the productivity gains that are on offer here will be seized and leveraged for economic and national security uh, over, over the long term. Now, when I think about why I might be optimistic in, in regards to the, the kind of the AI race between the U.S. and China, had you asked me a year ago to kind of assess where the race was, I would have said the race between the two nations is going to come down to three key variables. It's going to come down to the algorithms, the data, and the hardware. And a year ago, I would have said that the U.S. largely led, was winning the, the race when it comes to the algorithms that China was leading on the data. They were just generating so much data and the government has essentially unfettered access to that data, to those data. And then I would have said that the third category of hardware was a jump ball. And I would have said it was a jump ball because the US designs it, but it's overwhelmingly made and fabricated and tested and packaged deep within the sphere of the Chinese government. That's how I would have assessed it a year ago. Now, as we get into generative AI, we're, we're seeing a little bit of a rebalancing. We see that in a couple of different ways. So on the underlying computer science, I've already said that overwhelmingly exists here in the United States, the compute power to, to enable that as well. On the data, this is still not demonstrated. It's, it's not proven 
per se, but there's real hope that these generative AIs are going to be able to generate synthetic data that is as good, if not better, than kind of bespoke data sets that have traditionally been used to train these models. And so if, if we're able to realize that, that's a game changer for us because it allows us to build data sets of sufficient quality and size, although you need smaller data sets when you do this with high quality data, to, to help us be much more competitive vis-a-vis -vis China on, on, on data. And then on top of that, many of these new generative AI models are actually indexed on the open internet. And so you don't actually have to go and find these bespoke data sets. Well, that puts the Chinese Communist Party in a pickle because they have, because of their political concerns and their fragility, they have very significant controls on what is available on their internet. And even intangibly, it ends up shaping how their citizens conduct themselves on their internet. And so if they want to realize the full benefit of these capabilities, you know, they're going to have some hard choices to make in terms of how they manage their people and, and, and their access to the open web. And historically speaking, they always choose the security of the regime over, over their people. And then finally, on the hardware, as I mentioned, the, the October 7th rules of last year regarding constraints on Chinese access to cutting edge chips, and I think perhaps here in the near future, access to graphic processing units. Uh, as well, GPUs, which are essential for some of these models, I think those are being deeply constrained. And we've seen a bipartisan consensus to continue that and perhaps even to expand those constraints. So, you know, to summarize all that, it's not at all guaranteed, but I am fundamentally more optimistic now than I would have been a year ago. And uh, I think there's some some real intellectual foundation for that. That's an interesting note that you have there about the data. And one of the things that I did notice in the hearing was a concern that we have untapped data here. The discussion with Alexander Wang, you might recall, and I forget which member was asking about that, was that there is so much data that the DOD preserves on things like hard drives that just go into some sort of a storage facility and never see the light of day. And one of the things that needs to be done is that data needs to be available for exploitation. I mean, that seems like something that Congress uh, could certainly take on and award certain appropriations for. I mean, having worked, you know, for Senator Sass, do you think there's a fix to that well that is, is fully untapped at this point? Yeah, so it was a it was primarily a conversation between Alex, the CEO of Scale AI, and Congressman Mike Gallagher, the the chairman of the subcommittee of the House Armed Services Committee for you know Cyber Innovation and Technology. And what Alex, I think, rightly identified was I I think the number is somewhere in the neighborhood of the U.S. military generates somewhere in the neighborhood of twenty terabytes of data every day, the overwhelming majority of which is essentially untapped, unleveraged, unused. I don't think that that is the result of a lack of a desire to leverage that information. I think most of the machinery that we're using wasn't built during this current digital age. We have not built the systems to kind of capture and leverage and exploit that data. We're only now getting to the point, really, where exploitation of that volume of data in any kind of efficient time frame is, is, is actually available to us. So I do think that we'll eventually get there. In, in true American fashion, it will, it will be slower than it has to be. It will cost more than it has to, but we'll still do it better than everybody else. So we have real material problems. There's just, you know, our system is not efficient 
you know, and it wasn't built to be efficient. And we certainly live up to that. But as, as real as the challenges we have are, I would still rather be us every day. Because when the time comes, what we have proven time and time again, and I, this isn't just kind of raw, raw patriotism. I, I think it's 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 kind of an evidence-based notion that, that when push comes to shove, when the nation has to evolve rapidly, there's no more agile system than our system. And I think that's where we're heading. There's bipartisan interest on this. So this is one of the few issues that isn't, you know, a, a, a jump ball, you know, a shirts and skins game in Congress. And it's just a matter of like, okay, this is a really difficult, wicked problem, and we need to spend some some time and energy on it. And the right people are beginning to do so. Yeah, it sounded the hearing was remarkably civil, and everybody behaved like an adult. It was actually <laughs> a pleasure to watch. Let's go on because I one of the things I like to talk about um, on this podcast is we're great at identifying problems. I mean, I I always feel like you can. That's a cheap gift. You know, you can do that very easily. But solutions are another thing. And I think what we've done here is we tried to highlight sort of broad level solutions that might be possible. But you've worked in the counterterrorism ecosystem for years. And you know the ability of malevolent organizations and nation states to radicalize and recruit people into terrorist groups for just pennies. Is there anything that we have learned from that experience that we could harness and use to counter foreign influence campaigns uh, designed to divide us, even those using AI to amplify messages? But those folks who keep trying to divide us and cause us to lose faith in our democratic institutions, which, by the way, may be having some efficacy because recent polls show definitely a diminution in trust to some of our most sacred democratic institutions. But I feel like there might be a way to flip this on its head. What are your thoughts? To the degree that we make meaningful headway on these issues, it will likely be a technological advancement that allows us to quickly identify synthetic media. But even then, the, the reality is, is that the body politic consumes, increasingly consumes confirmatory messages and simply rejects anything that, that, that challenges their presuppositions. Now, that's not everybody, but it's a significant enough portion of the of the population as where it's having a very real political impact. So regardless of Republican or Democrat or independent or any of that, the, the, the messaging on all sides is one that is is going to use these capabilities, not only to generate fake stuff, that, that's certainly a part of it, but in terms of um, identifying micro-targeting audiences and then creating specialized narratives for each micro-targeted audience that moves them. And, and typically, from an influence standpoint, it's, it's, it's the rage that motivates people to act, not the sense of optimism and, and, and general well-being. I think we'll see that. I also think that the barriers to entry for these capabilities is so low and the potential political benefit is so high that every foreign government, every hostile foreign government is 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 going to be playing in this game now. Going back to my time in the intel community, we used to define threat by enemy intentions and capabilities. If they have the intention but no capability, I'm not too scared. If they have the capability but there's no intention, Again, not too scared. If they have both the intention and the capability, it's time to get concerned. This is one of those issues where I don't know that we're going to be able to decisively deny the enemy the capability. It's it's out there in the wild. It's, it's a low barrier to entry. What we have to begin doing is influencing the enemy's intentions 
And that involves using every element of national power to reshape someone like Vladimir Putin or Chairman Xi's political calculus about using these types of capabilities. We essentially have to get to a place to where they are convinced that the potential costs of doing this type of work are so high that it doesn't it doesn't justify taking the action in the first place. Now that's a tall order, but if you were to ask me what would it take to you know, decisively change the scenario, I think that's what it would require. And because I don't see us having the political will to kind of go down that road, I think that this, this challenge is, is gonna be a feature of our political public commentary for the foreseeable future. We've talked a little bit about data. There are an enormous number of companies out there whose data, whose platforms, are exploited, um, whose whose internet tools, whose micro-targeting tools are exploited by foreign actors. Um, And I'm sure that when they design these things, they design them to sell and to make money, to maybe try a new, new shiny thing. They did not create them because they wanted to trigger a national security crisis or divide Americans. And they don't want regulations, despite at least one CEO claiming he wanted to be regulated, only to be followed by the Cambridge Analytica crisis. This year, they have spent millions and millions of dollars lobbying members of Congress not to legislate in a way that would cause them to be liable under things like uh, the Telecommunications or Communications Decency Act, Section 230, or any other way. You know, the American Enterprise Institute promotes certain values about the freedom of private companies. We're at a crisis point right now where I think some of that uh, hope is, is challenged. I do not see that they're capable of handling any kind of fallout from AI, and they're not prepared to buffer against it. How do we sort of you know, preserve our system as it is of opportunity and enterprise, and yet at the same time, set some guardrails with some of these companies that just will not expend the resources, the capital resources necessary to protect uh, the national security of the United States, figuring, I think, as they do, it's just not their remit. What are your thoughts? So I think there's been a massive evolution in industries thinking about these issues since, say, 2010 until until now. You mentioned the American Enterprise Institute's emphasis on a free market economy, and we certainly are, but that's not the only principle. Uh, We also believe in a a strong national defense and in the promotion of human thriving. And we understand, you know, it's a a nonpartisan, but, you know, I, I think safe to say traditionally conservative worldview. But that worldview holds that these ideals are often in tension and that there is a tension. The work of of an informed citizenry and of industry and of government to, you know, to an appropriate degree is the navigating and balancing of those tensions. So I begin with the presupposition that there is no perfect outcome. There is no ideal to be achieved. There's only trades. And uh, it's a matter of, of making wise trades. Two, it is certainly the case that for a long time, many of the private sector technology leaders did not appreciate and certainly were not prepared for the level of of global influence and import that they amassed for themselves. And they were simply not ready. They did not understand that certain geopolitical realities were going to essentially force them to choose a flag. And that wasn't the United States who was doing that. That was that was China, among others, and increasingly other despotic countries who, who are following the Chinese lead there. 
That is no longer a mystery to most American technology companies. And now we have what I described earlier is that that messy process of, of them trying to find a way to more reasonably and responsibly wield their influence to partner with democratic governments and including the U.S. government in ways that, you know, fit their presuppositions and and, and, and the rights that they have as, as American companies within our constitutional system. And, you know, not to decisively place their interests at risk every chance they get. Now, I have been public in my critique of many of these companies on, on multiple occasions. But if you were to ask me about the current state of play, I would say that I'm I'm generally optimistic. Now, when we talk about them self-regulating, actually what just happened here recently was seven of the top AI companies just voluntarily chose to adhere to a series of commitments at the White House on artificial intelligence and how it is going to develop. Those commitments include things like having um, both internal and external organizations review uh, their AI offerings and uh, to have what they call red teams. These are people who are deliberately trying to misuse the algorithms or the, or the capabilities to see what kind of bad things could be done with them and then be proactively mitigating those risks. They have committed to work with one another within industry, sharing best practices, sharing information, identifying cybersecurity and insider risk threats. So that was the U.S. technology industry voluntarily choosing to take particular actions that I think will meaningfully improve the security. The unanswered or the unasked question behind that is, does anyone think that the government can meaningfully do better? I mean, is, is, is there really the belief that the United States government even if somehow it magically attained a level of insight in this moment right now about AI to where it could, with insight and wisdom, choose a, a regulatory scheme for AI in this moment. Does anyone believe that it can actually keep up with where AI is going to be a month from now? And just historically speaking, I see no precedent to draw that conclusion. We've seen that they have not in previous situations that Congress, for example, has not stepped up and they haven't yeah. proposed legislation. And sometimes they've evinced and during revealed during some of these hearings, a lack of understanding of how the technology functions. There is a role for industry and government and civil society to work together. In fact, it's going to be essential that that happen. And there may be a, a regulatory scheme that comes into play. But where we're seeing people go off the rails, for example, though, is perhaps if you look at the European Union with their strong proclivity of regulating first and asking questions later, and they have no meaningful technology domestic industry to constrain them. And it's precisely because of the, their regulatory posture. And so they keep doubling down further and further. So in the case of artificial intelligence, the EU has put forward this draft, the, the, the Artificial Intelligence Act, and just recently, 150 EU companies came out against this. And, and many of these companies are often the beneficiaries of EU regulatory action that, that constrains American or, or uh, well, American companies because they get the subsidies, they get the IP, they get the assist from the EU. But even in this case, on the AI Act, they came out and said, no, 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 if you enact this law, you are going to drive American technology out of our region and we are going to be left bereft with a market with no market and with no ip and this just will not work now right now the eu seems to be doubling down but it's just it, my only point there is just that 
there is real reason to suspect government's ability ultimately to lead us out of this unilaterally. Instead, I think we're going to have to have that um, that voluntary partnership amongst government, industry, and civil society. All right. Here's the curveball question of the entire podcast tonight. Is okay. Oppenheimer a cautionary tale to those developing AI? Please tell us your thoughts. So uh, Mark Andreessen wrote a blog post here recently. Uh, Mark Andreessen, founding father of um, Andreessen Horowitz. It's a venture capital firm for those of you who don't know. It's a big one. That's right. That's right. It's a, it's, it's a big one. He started out as, I think, the founder of Netscape. So anyways, he, he wrote a blog post here recently called How AI Will Save the World or, or something to that effect. It was more optimistic than I am, but it was, I think it was helpful. And in it, he references, I'm, I'm, I'm going to forget who it was, but he references someone else's observation about Oppenheimer's hand-wringing post-development of the nuclear weapon. And the observation was, some people confess so that they can take credit for the sin. Nuclear weapons are a reasonable parallel if we want to talk about an advancing technology that will have significant implications across many, many aspects of society and life. I do not believe much of the apocalyptic rhetoric associated with AI. We are a long way from any of that. And there, as a national security professional, I can tell you there are dozens of truly apocalyptic risks that rank much higher than artificial intelligence that I am concerned about, that I am very happy just to keep pushing forward on AI with wisdom, with reason, but uh, I'm not worried about the rise of the robots. All right. Well, our guest tonight has been Con Kitchen, whose testimony before Congress, we're going to hyperlink in the notes to this podcast. This is the, I believe, fourth installment in our series on AI, which we will continue for you uh, next week. It's been great to have you on. I hope you'll come back and talk to us in about a year or two. And, and once this thing has played out a little bit more. It'd be a pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Before we sign off tonight, we wanted to continue our short segment, America the United. We wanted to offer you a little history from 2010. In 2010, Hurricane Katrina displaced over half a million people from their homes. A makeshift flotilla of people that called themselves the Cajun Navy is credited with rescuing more than 10,000 people from flooded homes and rooftops. These were average citizens who mobilized. They rescued people who looked like them, who didn't look like them, anyone in need using their personal fishing vessels. Just thought that might be nice for you to hear tonight as we're facing challenges to our unity. And in recent Time Magazine piece written by uh, John Avalon, Mickey Edwards, Maya McGinnis, and Jonathan Haidt, who are all authors from different backgrounds and disciplines, but they're all highly intelligent individuals. It noted that 80% of Americans say they're concerned about political polarization, and 78% of Americans believe it's important that Republican and Democrats work together. Only about a quarter of students in 2018 scored proficient or better on basic civics tests with about 15% scoring the same on American history, according to the National Assessment of Education Progress. To address this, uh, the authors suggested that we drive toward a political system where solving problems is put ahead of destroying the other side, an economic system that rebuilds the middle class and ensures equal opportunity and social mobility for all Americans, and a civic culture that embraces shared values, or as I have referred to it on this podcast, our once lingua franca, and the dignity of every individual while protecting the open debate that democracy depends upon, some of the things that Klan's been talking about in our clunky system. 
Uh, they offered some broad but simple solutions to these concerns that divide us, including the elimination of gerrymandering by both parties and the use of bipartisan redistricting committees, increased civics education. Yes, Suzanne Spaulding. Yes, Elizabeth Rinskoff Parker. I know you were saying this years before. And means to make our capitalist system more inclusive by changing the tax code, incentivizing small businesses, and strengthening our critical infrastructure, among other things. You can read this piece by clicking on the notes to this podcast, where we'll include a link to it. Thanks for joining us tonight. Our guest has been Klom Kitchen of the American Enterprise Institute. Please remember to subscribe to NSLT on your listening app of choice. And if you like, rate us. Contact us with feedback. You can find us on what used to be called Twitter, now known as X, at least it is today. Our handle there and on threads is at ABA NatSec. And you can always do it the old fashioned clunky way, which is to email us at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Share this cast with a friend. Our producer and writer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, along with the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.